Welcome to the Urban Lab with Sam Chandon, the podcast on cities and the built environment, featuring leaders in industry, research, and policymaking. Welcome to the Urban Lab. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Silverstein Chair and Dean of the NYU SPS Shack Institute of Real Estate. As our regular listeners know, issues related to housing affordability and access to the amenities that are tied to where people live, whether it's public transportation, high quality food choices, or good quality public schools, are policy issues that we come back to time and again on this program. Since the onset of the pandemic and cliff dive in the labor market, the question of how income-constrained families are managing immediate threats to housing security has taken on even greater urgency, particularly in communities of color. As federal supplements to unemployment benefits and constraints on eviction have expired, the number of families at risk of housing dislocation has risen sharply. Well, as of this week, we have an important new tool in the search for creative solutions to our most pressing housing affordability needs. Three institutions, the Low Income Investment Fund, Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future, and the National Affordable Housing Trust have just announced a joint venture that will raise $1 billion to preserve and expand affordable housing opportunities in the United States. With me to discuss the new initiative, I'm delighted to be joined by Kimberly Latimer-Nelligan, President of the Low Income Investment Fund, Lori Little, President and CEO of the National Affordable Housing Trust, and Andrea Ponzer, President and CEO of Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. Kim, Lori, Andrea, this has to be an exceptionally busy week for you with the big announcement. Tell us about your three organizations and the partnership. Sure, Sam, and thanks again for having us all here today. We're very excited about our launch. Um, So the Low Income Investment Fund, or LIF, is a national nonprofit community development financial institution, or CDFI. We have approximately $900 million of assets under management, and our mission is to mobilize capital and partners to achieve opportunity, equity, and well-being for people in communities. Since we were formed about 35 years ago, we've deployed more than $2.7 billion to serve more than 2 million people in communities across the country. We are an S&P rated organization, and we innovate financial solutions that create more equitable outcomes by investing in homes, in schools, in early care and education, in health clinics, in healthy food and food deserts, and other community-based assets. Um, Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future, our partner, or SAFE, is a nonprofit collaborative, a membership organization of 13 multi-state nonprofit affordable housing providers who own amongst them about 150,000 affordable rental homes. And SAFE brings a knowledge base garnered from and informed by its members who have a very strong track record of delivering financially responsible and affordable housing that encompasses resident voice and community choice. And additionally, SAFE itself as a membership organization has a very strong voice in federal housing policy. National Affordable Housing Trust, or NAHT, is a nonprofit low-income housing tax credit, or LIHTC syndicator, 
and development consultant committed to financing and investing in the preservation and development of affordable multifamily rental homes across the United States. And NEHT brings more than 30 years of mission-focused work with developers and investors to create and preserve housing for seniors and families. So you um, have, I'm sure, caught on to a theme by now. We are all very engaged in the affordable housing sector and have a strong track record of collaboration based on shared values and mission. Um, we all believe having access to quality, safe, affordable housing is one of the most powerful social determinants of health and a foundational asset for individual mobility. So when we started working together, um, it became really self-evident that we would have greater impact through a more formal collaboration. And so historically, SAFE had been the sole member of NEHT. With this joint venture, LIF becomes a member alongside SAFE um, in NEHT. And so the three of us um, will collaborate um, in a more formal way going forward. How uh, rare or common is it for three organizations with uh, th that are so well established that have the, the, the legacy of your organizations to actually come together like this? I, I think it's quite unique in the nonprofit sector. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, there are certain um, barriers, I believe, to uh, this kind of collaboration in the nonprofit sectors because we are not um, wholly economically or financially driven, but mission driven, um, I think that the alignment is critical. In our case, we had um, boards that were very supportive, longstanding relationships between SAFE members and LIF and NEHT. Uh, and I think that it, in the context of the housing crisis, which just continued to worsen. I, I, I think that there was a lot of support um, across our organizations and our boards um, for, this, for this joint venture. Lori, if I can ask you to jump in, how did the partnership come about? Uh, I realize, you know, the you know, the affordability housing challenges we face in the United States are, uh, on one hand, enormous, but the world of people that are in leadership roles in the affordable housing space is actually quite small. Uh, did you and Kim and Andrea and your respective boards uh, know one another? Have you worked together before? Did did the idea come up uh, in conversation? Uh, how did it happen? Sure, great question, Sam. So we are all really mission-first organizations, very focused on what is that the resident needs to really thrive. And we believe that that safe, affordable home is really the cornerstone of that. Uh, Kim had served on our board for quite a few years as an out, one of our outside independent board members. So she knew NAHT well. And as she mentioned, uh, they had had several products that a lot of the SAFE members had used that were very innovative uh, community building products. And then several years ago, uh, NAHT and LIFT came together to offer a acquisition tool to SAFE members to help them quickly acquire products as they came on the market and were at risk of um, going market instead of staying affordable. We call it the FPAC product. It's a hundred million dollar acquisition line that is to really help quickly preserve uh, affordable communities. So that really helped us get across the finish line. Uh, that said, it took a, a constant determinant that this is a goal that we really felt would be additive and expansive to the marketplace. 
and it took a lot of dedication of our three boards to make happen. Great. So, Andrea, I'm going to ask you in a second about sort of what exactly the partnership is going to do and how it's going to tackle the challenge. But before I do that, Lori, would you characterize the partnership and the work that uh, the three organizations are going to do now as something that is really a response to uh, the pandemic, the recession? Uh, is it something that you had in mind earlier? These are obviously long-standing problems, but one that have ones that have been really exacerbated significantly. By, uh, by, by the pandemic. So this took us about 18 months to put together. And I, I would tell you, if anything, the pandemic, we all took a step back with each of our boards and said, okay, what do we know about this pandemic? What do we know from our decades of work that is needed? And we all came back and said, we need more affordable housing. We need mission first developers mission first capital and so really to our board's credit they all said move forward move forward move forward situations that are happening today with the pandemic and what we believe will be a recession coming on the tail of that really convicted us more than ever that the time was right to do this uh andrea one of the things that i'm very cognizant of is that you know, many real estate investors see uh you know downturns in periods of stress in the market as opportunities to acquire assets at discounts. Um, I think not everyone is cognizant of you know, the pernicious impact that that has had in previous cycles on the availability and supply of relatively more affordable housing. Uh, we've seen uh, folks go in and acquire uh, space uh, with an intent to reposition it in ways that really takes it out of the naturally occurring affordable supply in the United States. What kinds of things um, will the partnership be doing uh, to actually tackle the issue? So I, I think you framed the challenge nicely, Sam. Nationwide, we see half of all renters being rent burdened, right? Spending more than 30% of their income on rent. When you go to lower income people, that goes up to 75%. We're missing about 7 million homes that are affordable to those lowest income people. And when home isn't affordable, you start to make trade-offs between healthcare, food, and education. The pandemic has shown a bright light on those trade-offs and how toxic they can be and how quickly destabilizing they can become. So at, at its core, this partnership is going to fix the housing crisis by creating housing, 10,000 units in five years to start. Um, and it's not just building new, it's saving what's out there and then preserving for people at lower incomes what's already out there. The partnership brings together the tools and the know-how. Uh, the syndication and the investment that NAHT brings is matched with consulting services as well as flexible sources of capital that Lyft brings to the table so that it's not just the high capacity players that are safe members that can access these funds so that we can bring along other organizations and a host of communities to identify the homes that need to be addressed and, and retained as affordable. And, and it's not just roofs over the head. We're, we're looking for partners and opportunities to think about home and affordability holistically and to foster stability and well-being. And that's everything from thinking about sustainability, keeping energy costs low, remaining resilient to disruption and having a healthy place to live and, and building materials and, and neighborhood but also services that connect people to the other things they need. Um, many safe members have focused on resident services coordination, connecting people to things like education, income supports, healthy food, and healthcare. And again, in the pandemic, we've seen the absolute value of that. Um, safe members have filled gaps for people in many of these communities, and we think that's an important feature to build in in the future. Are we talking about scenarios where um, a multifamily asset, a rental apartment building might become available for sale? 
folks taking advantage of the program, the initiative, are going to have to go to the open market and bid against you know, that large multifamily developer who does intend to reposition. And if that's the case, how do you structure the, 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 the winning deal? I think what becomes important in that scenario is speed and flexibility. And that's part of what we think we, we can bring to bear with this partnership. If you are out there in a competitive marketplace, and so often we are, particularly when you're talking about something that may have been what we think of as natural, naturally affordable, those class C apartments that are such an important part of the housing stock. There are a lot of people interested in those properties and, and a lot of owners that may be thinking about selling now that we face several months of lower rent collections and a lot of strain on operating costs. There will be opportunities. We'll need to move quickly to have those opportunities remain affordable because value-add purchasers will be out there with cash. So using some of the flexibility and know-how that Lyft brings, coupled with longer-term solutions that ensure affordability through NEHT and that low-income housing tax credit, we think we can make a longer-term play here to preserve some of that affordable housing. You know, we haven't talked too about there's a lot of affordable housing that currently has a restriction that in the next 10 years will burn off and need solutions too. And we're drawing on a constrained pool of federal and local resources for that. So we need these partnerships to forge creative strategies to keep those things affordable as we you know, advocate for and think of new policy solutions as well. I think with this joint venture, this collaboration, we absolutely will have tools available, not just to SAFE members who we have served and will continue to serve, um, but I would say other, other nonprofit um, mission-driven developers who um, like SAFE members want to keep the affordable housing stock affordable. Um, you know, and you, you touched on this, Sam, in the last recession. Um, I think all, all of us were in the business then as well. And we did see a lot of private equity come in and, and purchase up uh, projects and whole portfolios, both of properties coming out of compliance, as well as, as, as Andrea said, naturally occurring affordable housing. And we really cannot let that happen again and go backwards, um, which would worsen this crisis. And so um, I, I think by coming together, uh, we will be able to make more capital available at scale. I will give you uh, an example. Last summer, um, LIF issued a $100 million S&P rated bond that was certified as a sustainability bond. Um, it was a $100 million face issue. And we had 10 times that in demand or $1 billion. And this was from investors who wanted a safe and sound financial return, but also really cared about the social return. Um, and so I think through this joint venture, we will be able to access that kind of capital at scale to help us um, keep these units affordable. Yeah, I was just going to add uh, for those sellers that are out there that say, you know, it's no longer time for me to hold my asset. Uh, this is not the right place for me to be anymore, but still have that mission heart and would like to see their asset be passed on to someone who likewise wants to provide affordable housing. Uh, we believe that this partnership will bring together developers that have the wherewithal to take on those new challenges, but partner with a capital source that the seller can count on being there and being able to move fast. Uh, we've got that in place already. We'd look to expand that with our FPAC fund. That was why it was designed. And, you know, fortuitously right before this crisis that allows the developers to move quickly from an offer to a closing. Kim, how does this differ from a community development financial institution, low income housing tax credit syndicator partnership? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, it's certainly a busy space, this indicator, the LIHTC syndication space. 
I think we really are unique for many of the reasons that Andrea touched on. Um, this partnership includes the SAFE members. And so, you know, they are on the ground working with residents um, and understand the challenges of not just building, um, you know, building affordable housing and financing affordable housing, but also putting the resident at the center, lifting up resident agency. Everybody wants, everyone wants to control, right, the house, the home that they live in it's important that we deliver a market rate return that is safe and sound, which we absolutely will be able to do. But in this affordable housing finance sector, the consolidation activity um, to date is generally amongst for-profit players um, driven by financial gain and economics. And, and it certainly makes economic sense to consolidate. However, this makes LIHTC residents, residents in low-income housing tax credit projects, especially vulnerable to displacement at the end of the compliance period. And so as a mission focus indicator, NEHT considers the long-term impacts and outcomes of each affordable housing project it funds. Um, and as we've talked about in the last great recession, there was a lot of private equity that came in. And so as, mission, as a mission first syndicator and financial institution, um, you know, we really focus very much on, um, you know, nimble capital, flexible capital at scale. So affordable housing homes, uh, affordable homes, I should say, can stay affordable and allow residents to remain in place. So you raised a really important point about, you know, wanting to provide that market return. You must get questions about the risk profile of the investment. Sure. So I'll start and then maybe Laurie or Andrea wants to chime in, but I, I truly believe that um, this is a sector, affordable housing and tax credits in particular, where there is a big gap between actual risk and, and perceived risk. If you look at the history of the tax credit program, which is long, um, there, are, there are very, very low rates of default. Um, in 99% in of the cases, um, the tax credit return is delivered as promised. Um, and, and again, very, very low risk of loss. LIF, as a financial institution in the, in the context of affordable housing and other community assets and a 35-year history, um, we have never defaulted on a payment to an investor in our portfolio itself. And I mentioned the $2.7 billion earlier. Um, our credit losses are under 40 basis points. Um, I did a paper with the San Francisco Fed after the last recession and compared Lyft's performance um, in that crisis to banks of regulated financial institutions of comparable size, and and their 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 loss rates were much higher. We are you know we we understand the communities we serve. We're in the communities, um, and so I think we are we we are able to deliver a safe and sound financial return and have the track record that that supports that. Yeah, if you revisit that analysis after. Uh, this moment of crisis uh, with your colleagues from the San Francisco Fed, I certainly hope you will come back uh, to the program to tell us about uh, what you find. And, and I imagine it will be very much uh, along the same lines as uh, what you saw during the, the previous downturn. A Andrea, you know, one of the things that you know, we talk about a lot is the importance of location, not just uh, the unit that you're renting and where you live and the amenities in the building, but all of the other things that that gives you access to. How does uh, the partnership address some of those issues? 
So we talk more and more about how housing is health. And, and that begins with the built environment of, of a home that is free from, from lead and radon and all of those things that can have a, a range of health impacts. When you have a healthy, safe home, it can improve outcomes on everything from asthma to fall. Housing stability and the affordability of a home is a health indicator as well. Um, when you start to see people unstable in their homes, you see poor outcomes in mental and physical health and school attendance and those broader things. So getting to affordability is the first place we think about health and well-being. But if you have that stable home, it can be a fulcrum for other things, either because it's immediately well-located and that, that flourishing community is there, and we're bringing together the financial resources and the partners to create more homes in those well-located communities. But you also can leverage in-services and start to think about what a community needs right at home, where those, those resources in the community may not be as strong right now or may just not be as close by. And that's where that resident services partnership comes in. Um, you know, part of the challenge here is, well, we've more and more recognized that housing is health and it's this incredible platform for improving well-being. We're asking the same group of housers and the same group of resources to do all of those things instead of just build and operate a home. NAHT has already had together with SAFE some great success in bringing in new partners like United Healthcare to help think about what are the services, what are the ways in which we can connect housing to, to other levers for opportunity and well-being. We think through this partnership, through this lift expertise in things like early childhood and healthy food, we're going to be able to forge more new partnerships, bring in new folks to think about how not only can we open up housing opportunities in communities that already have those things, but reinvest in all of the places that, that have lacked those things for so many years. Uh, what does that process look like? How are you actually engaging with the communities that you're investing in? Sure. So it, it's multi-pronged. You know, we think about where we're locating things. There are required processes of resident engagement and different funding sources. Think about ways that you want to analyze the community and what it offers and what it doesn't. We want to go a step further. Safe members and, and the partners that we want to work with through this JV are those that think a lot about how to work with the community, identify what the institutions are, who the leaders are, how we can strengthen them, and then use those groups and those leaders to drive broader engagement and understanding what's the vision that the people living there have for this community, for the housing that we build and the other thing that goes, other things that go around it. That extends to how we do services too. It is data-driven. We look at what the property has, what is going on in the lives of the people who live there, and what the community offers too. What services already exist? What are the gaps in the community? And then go, go back to the residents and say, okay, we think it's this that you need. We think that there's an opportunity here to do after-school programming or close gaps on food. Is that right? And continue to evaluate the outcomes as we deliver services and connect to things and revisit with residents over time. So it's an ongoing process, both data-driven and qualitative, based on what the residents are saying. And, and I would just add, uh, just with the real-world example during the pandemic, we really believe this resident service coordinator to really be at the heart of the housing being able to deliver the services that Andrea talks about. Uh, we have, uh, through our fund called the Strong Families Fund, we have taken a resident service coordinator and put them in family projects, in five projects. And in a large project in Columbus, Ohio, uh, during the pandemic, there were over 200 children that one day were in school and the next day were at home and trying to figure out how to do virtual school. And most of those kids did have access to some type of device, but they had, if they had internet, it was slow speed and did not work for virtual school. 
So the service coordinator said, this is a problem. I've got 200 kids this is a problem for, and went out in the community. And with the program that was already existed, was able to partner with that internet provider to provide high speed access, the highest speed available to all 200 of those kids as long as they were at home virtually. That wouldn't have happened without a service coordinator knowing the exact needs of the project. And so I think it's a great example of what's already in the community, but connecting them to what the residents say they actually need real time. Sure. And I think, you know, a lot of us take it for granted that you know, we were able to pick up our laptops, you know, mid-March, go home, plug right back in, and all of a sudden uh, we're, uh, you know, productive economic agents and participating members of society in the midst of a pandemic where we couldn't leave our homes. And this critical issue of uh, whether, or, you know, the disparities in our ability to connect um, you know, in terms of school outcomes, work outcomes, uh, just, you know, how we feel as engaged or disengaged members of society. Uh, you know, the, the digital divide uh, was, has been on such display over the course of this pandemic. That, that's amazing uh, to hear that you were able to do that with the Strong Families Fund. And I'm sorry, Andrea, I cut you off. I, you know, I think you made my point well, that the, the pandemic has shown a bright light on a digital divide that we knew existed for years. One of the things, you know, SAFE members have long undertaken this um, process we call our outcomes initiative, where they're actually collecting data on how the lives of residents are going to better understand how to serve their communities. So we have in the last year actually added a data point around this, trying to understand how people experience that divide and how they're closing it. It's one more place we think through this partnership, we're going to be able to leverage that data and start coming up with more solutions. You know, at the same time, we're collecting case studies, talking with funders and doing the research part. We'll bring that back and figure out how we can actually start building in not just the wiring to have internet, but a way that it exists in people's home because it is such a fundamental piece of you know, employment, education, health, and, and social connectivity. Our ability to engage and be participating members of society, so fundamentally dependent upon our ability to connect to the internet and to see that you know, in 2020, there is still such a significant share of the population you know, that struggles to connect in a way that, you know, is not simply connecting, uh, but allowing us to participate in the conversation, the national conversation, the community conversation is really uh, astounding. Laurie, you know, because this is such an important point, I was uh, learning a little bit about the National Church Residences Project in Columbus, Ohio, and I know it's along the same lines of what you've already described, but, but could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So through the Strong Families Fund, we worked with a project that was coming out of affordability that National Church Residents had developed some time ago. We were able to significantly rehab the project with low-income housing tax credits and provide a community center. This, if you can imagine, this apartment complex with 200 children had no community space. And so through our joint efforts with National Church Residents, we were able to provide a community space where there's after-school programming. Uh, this is a community that English is mostly a second language for the children. So uh, a local church has partnered and come in and does English as a second language, but that foundational community space has really was created with the, the low-income housing tax credit. And then of course did rehab and modernize the units. And this is a story that's repeated all across the country and it's a story that we hope to really shine a spotlight on and do a lot more of through our partnership. 
but really curious about this. So much of the conversation, the market rate, uh, you know, a segment of the industry, whether it's office or retail or, or, or multifamily is focused on this question of what you know, our space use patterns will look like in the post-pandemic world. And we don't know what the post-pandemic world will look like. So there's a great deal of speculation, uh, but uh, what's your sense of the balance of uh, you know, personal versus community space? Has the pandemic motivated any new thinking or changed thinking around space design and the kinds of amenities that you want to provide? Um, I do believe it has. I think that we see the, the need for the digital space. So as an example, many of our projects have a really nice computer lab that has, is used by the residents. But with the advent of telehealth and the need to use that, some of that space is needing to be rethought so that it's HIPAA compliant, so that individuals can go into that space and use it to get healthcare as well. And so I think a lot of the space and amenities that we see will be rethought to think how there is a, a modicum of privacy, but as well as access to the community. So, so Kim, yeah, one of the things that you mentioned uh, as well was that uh, in terms of the bottom line, um, you know, one of the things that is uh, more important to investors today than perhaps has been the case in the past um, is the uh, the supplement uh, to the financial return, right? That 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 mission element of it. You know, why have you seen that change? The four of us have been in the industry for a long time. What's new? Um, and is it a reflection of our national conversation? Great questions and important considerations. I do think that, um, you know, as you've pointed out, we've been in this um, sector for decades, and it really has only been in the last decade, but more specifically, maybe the last three or four years, where we've really seen um, a rise in interest in, um, you know, so, you know, from impact investors or uh, investors looking for social returns. I think part of it is just generational wealth is changing hands, and it's coming into the hands of folks who, um, you know, really were, were, were raised in a, in, in, you know, in this, in kind of this generation um, and everything from climate change to the housing crisis. Um, I, I think that they um, understand the need to um, get back, give back and think about a social return. For example, um, Liv was just a recipient of a very large gift from Mackenzie Scott to further our work in um, racial equity and child care and um, among other things. Uh, and so I, I, I think that that's, I, so I think it is incumbent upon us as we seek to attract more dollars to the sector so we can do more work, have, an, have more impact. Um, we have to get better about measuring and quantifying what that impact is because these are investors who really want to understand the impact you're having, not just in a narrative form, but in an economic form. Um, uh, I will mention briefly that one of the things that are that's coming out of Lyft's current strategic plan is the development of a framework which will measure impact uh, with racial equity at the center of our investments in a way that also takes into consideration risk and return so that we can continue to have a portfolio that will support our long-term sustainability and be able to um, allow us to repay investors, maintain an S&P rating, and yet be able to advance racial equity. So I, I think that we have our work cut out for us in terms of measurement and evaluation. 
So I want to come back to you, Laurie, in a second with a question about uh, the first project that the partnership <laughs> is pursuing. Uh, before I do that, Andrea, you know, just to elaborate a little bit on Kim's point, um, for you, what are your going to be your metrics of success? Certainly, you know, there's an element of are we creating housing? Are we, are we providing financial solutions so that we are preserving and creating affordable homes? They think real success looks like scaling practices where we're seeing more and more developers put residents at the center and find partners from outside the traditional sectors. So seeing these practices where you add time and provide, provide a funding mechanism to really understand what that community wants and needs in their home and how you can pair housing with those other things and how we can bring other stakeholders to the table, health core organizations, tech organizations, educational systems, all wanna see housing solutions too. We just need to provide new vehicles and in ways for them to participate that make sense. Fantastic. Lori, tell us about the first project. Uh, one, we really want to expand on our work with United Health Group. Uh, we announced a $100 million fund in June where they invested in housing and services. We really see that as a springboard for doing more. And we're talking to more insurance companies and, of course, talking a deeper dive with United Healthcare. So we are, that's, that's number one. Uh, but number two, and closely behind it, is really starting the journey on a community of colors fund that really supports developers of color who are developing in the communities, as you heard from both Kim and Andrea, what is it that that, that community really wants to see in housing, and really providing capital as an engine to make that happen. So we're, we're a deep down dive in both of those, and uh, we hope to be announcing something in the coming months. Kim, uh, Lori, Andrea, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, and again, congratulations on the partnership. Uh, my guests again were Kimberly Latimer Nelligan, president of the Low Income Investment Fund, Lori Little, president and CEO of the National Affordable Housing Trust, and Andrea Ponzer, president and CEO of Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. I'm Sam Chandon, and you're listening to The Urban Lab. Thanks for listening to The Urban Lab. For more information about the program and our host, please visit samchandon.com slash urbanlab.